Welcome to the CodeCast Podcast. Real-world insights for your daily medical coding and billing processes. And now, here's your host, Terry Fletcher. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CodeCast Podcast. Today, my name is Terry Fletcher. So one thing I failed to mention last week, and I can't believe I did that on Valentine's Day, was that I forgot to mention it's Heart Month. And Heart Month, I can't believe I forgot to mention it last week, but we're still in February, so I can still do that. And so there, I'm going to give you some things that relate to um, that theme. So some cardiology information. I'm also going to look at some questions that I've been getting lately, and I don't want to just wait for my top 10 Tuesday at the end of the month or next week, but I wanted to just kind of um, talk about some things that have been coming up quite a bit, and especially when we're talking about uh, the shared and split visits. This seems to be an ongoing, I don't know, headache for a lot of people, and I don't want you to have to continue with that headache. I think it's so frustrating when you're trying to do, you know, what's right and and really, um, you know, code your best, capture your best for your physician. And then you get questions and you're just like, oh my gosh, I feel so bad that everybody's still, you know, concerned or confused at some things. So first of all, question came in, is there a Medicare guideline stating that the NP and the MD documenting and signing the chart, they have to do it on the same date of service. So two things here, and this doesn't just apply to shared or split visits. For Medicare, first of all, the provider who is completing the documentation has to sign off on the note. That's split or shared visits uh, in the hospital setting. Remember, can't do that in the office. But both providers' names who are uh, participating in that split or shared visit still have to be in the note. But here's what applies to all records. If the note is not signed, the service is not billable. So it's not a complete note at that point. So as far as specific timeframes when the note must be signed, you would probably need to query your risk management department who should have a policy in your office on this. Um, And if you don't have a risk management department, if you are a smaller practice, you should have a compliance program or a compliance manual that says we will be signing off on chart notes, hopefully daily. But Medicare says um, and that's is all the only thing they'll document is that the record must be signed in a reasonable amount of time. But then you go back to say to your providers, hey, I can't send this out or bill it. And we're on time limits on when we can bill things until you sign it. So get your record signed. It's it it's easy. If you don't sign it, it's not billable. So now it's free. We don't want to do that. So it's really important to make sure that um, you are following that rule. Another question comes up, it says, if an NPP, which is a non-physician provider, is not employed by the physician, so you're not, it's not a cost to your practice, but it's cost to the hospital, is this still a split or shared visit? No. Both providers need to be employed by the same group and they must be, and they need to be the same specialty or subspecialty. Here's why. You're billing something to the insurance companies or to the payers, and remember, Every CPT code has a relative value unit. Well, that value has work value, overhead, costs, things like that. Well, if you don't pay the employee you're splitting or sharing the visit with, then you're getting more money than you're entitled to. You can't pass along an expense to a patient where you didn't incur one. And so you can only have it from somebody that you pay, somebody you employ. It can be 1099 or or, uh, employee W-2, but it has to be within your group practice, same specialty or subspecialty. Hopefully that made sense where I have so many doctors asking that cert- that question saying that 
um, you know, I, I don't, I want to use one of the nurse practitioners, the hospital, and why can't I split or share their visit because they are involved in the patient care? It's because you don't pay them. Well, what does that matter? Well, because you're trying to bill for something that you don't have an expense for. So that to me is, is a pretty easy way to explain it to um, a physician. And that, that's just something that um, goes with a lot of things. I've had practices trying to bill for device checks on the uh, heart side. And I'm like, but you have your reps doing it from one of the companies that um, provide the the device implant. And I say, you're not paying them. They're like, oh, shoot. No, I'm not. Same thing. Same concept. Now, here's kind of a, a funny question. And it's funny because it's not a likely situation. And so when I get the question, I'm like, yeah, that's not happening. Somebody had said to me recently, not only in the office, but this is again, shared or split visit. How do I explain to doctors that they need to document split shared visits based on time when they always have used their mid-level providers as scribes. They don't understand why they need to change or why the mid-level can't document everything and they just attest to the note. Well, remind them that prior to 2021, they could do that. They could just go over and sign off on everything the mid-level did because they were part of the process. They were, that's why they call them mid-levels. They don't call them clinical or ancillary staff because they are allowed to treat just as the physician does and bill out independently from, a, um, instead of billing out under the physician's NPI number. But it's not likely that you're going to use a mid-level as a scribe. And if you did, just for me as an auditor, I would call you out on that. Do you know how expensive mid-levels are? That's why we have them because they are an extension of a provider. And so, and sometimes a replacement for a physician on the incident two in the office. So that is not a scribe. A scribe is a clinical person who's who is trained on transcription and medical terminology who has no function in the medical decision-making or treating of a patient, none whatsoever, not any level. They are only a scribe, meaning basically they're a transcriptionist and that's it. So just know that's why you have to let them know you cannot do that. Not only that, with staff shortages right now, why would you want to use a mid-level provider as a scribe? That just doesn't even make sense at all. Um, and when they can actually see patients uh, that a physician could see and the doctor doesn't have to be in the room. And then the last thing I'm, I'm going to talk about on the shared or split visits, because I do a webinar on this and I know I've done a couple of podcasts on this. So just remind, just a reminder that the FS, so F as in Frank, S as in Sam modifier uh, that you have to use um, this is what you have to put on the claim. If you're billing for the provider who provides the service on a split or shared visit and who reports it, they need the FS modifier. So um, just make sure that you know both providers have to go on the claim. I've actually read something recently in an AAPC Healthcare Business Monthly, and it was incorrect what they said. They said, um, do you have to put both providers um, actually, you have to have both providers in the documentation, so not necessarily on the claim, but you're billing under the one provider, so let me backtrack on that, that performed the substantive portion or billed on time, doesn't matter, and that FS goes on that claim indicating that it was a split or shared visit. doesn't matter who gets the billing rights of it, it just matters who um, who is the one that actually gets to submit it or send it out. So that's, that's really important to make sure that you get that um, pretty accurate because, oh my gosh, that has been just nothing short of a nightmare as far as um, they want to get, they want to data mine, meaning Medicare and other payers to make sure that they can tell if this is being utilized correctly and who's getting credit for it, who's billing for it, and that it's not just a sign off by the physician. So they are going to be tracking these services. 
So for my cardiology practices, again, actually also my uh, primary care listeners out there, um, one thing that's been coming up lately is I'm getting a lot of my coding corner clients saying that they're having denials with EKGs for medical necessity. So medical necessity, as you know, is really hard to prove from a, an appeal standpoint. So let me give you just maybe some advice on what I would do when it comes to those kinds of denials. Because there's such a small ticket item, you might want to batch them based on payer and then send them all as a batch and then alert your um, provider relations department that this is a problem. And I think it's worth it because you want to set a precedence. This is not something you want to let go. Um, so here's a, something that, that was billed with it. And you're mostly going to see these denials from what I hear on established patient visits because you can't provide an EKG routinely, any testing really, on an established patient unless there's some kind of indication or reason that you're going to provide that service. Standing orders in the office soon do not make sense. In the hospital, because there's ongoing surveillance and because the level of acuity is different, but in the office, a standing order just because of a diagnosis may get kicked out as a denial, and we're starting to see that. So let's take EKGs for a second. Okay, so one of the examples was the RBB, which is a right bundle branch block. Okay, so an electrocardiogram finding results is a widened QRS and electrocardiographic vector changes. So it's usually benign, but this finding can represent underlying myocardial issues or disease for a, a patient. And it also can be a um, predictor of mortality in certain patient populations. So it's it's important if you've got a patient that's got coronary artery disease um, and it's chronically um, progressing or there's a problem with a new onset of, let's say, dyspnea or shortness of breath, and your physician says, you know, I want to run an EKG today. Well, how do you, and then you get it denied. Well, use that diagnosis of that RBB and then expand on that on the appeal. The patient presented with and add the symptoms. And so an EKG was medically necessary. Always throw back their own terms to them. And say it was a medically necessary test to determine if the patient did in fact have a pos have possible cardiac disease based on the presenting um, problem. So this is something that you can do with symptoms that they're presented for. Get the definition of the symptom, not just the ICD-10 code, but you can even Google it. Just type in what it is and it'll give you a really good definition and then use that definition in your appeal and flip it on the payer and say we could not determine if the patient actually had this unless we actually did this test. So that's something that I think it's going to be really important moving forward um, when it comes to seeing more and more denials. I'm getting very frustrated with payers because I'm seeing them post all of these profits in the millions and billions of dollars and they can't staff their, you know, their um, customer service call center. I mean, come on. Or people who look at their uh, appeals. I mean, it's, it's seriously a racket. And I'm wondering what the Department of Insurance is actually doing in the government because they're not helping right now. Nobody's regulating uh, anything that has to do with payers right now. And it's, it's very frustrating. I don't know if you saw what's going on with the No Surprise Act IDR process. So the Independent Dispute Resolution, that actually has been put on hold as far as 
uh, making any payment determinations because they're so backed up. So the regulatory offices said, okay, just hold on to it. We'll see if we can get you some more staff or pull in another agency, but don't pay anything out until we can figure this out. Well, that doesn't help anybody. So the delays you're seeing now, if you're involved in that process, it's going to actually continue. So I'm just a little bit frustrated on the payer side right now. And now seeing these kinds of trivial denials when I would say 90% of the time they're accurate is just... I don't know. How do you word that? It's and being politically correct. It's frosting my cookies. I'm a little bit annoyed with that. Now, I wanted to comment on a couple of things I'm seeing when it comes to coding for uh, UTIs. So when you're coding for certain things, it's interesting where I'm seeing a little bit of a problem here that you want to um, get as specific as possible, but also make sure that you are reading the ICD-10 index for what a urinary tract infection really is. So I know it seems like the N39.0 is the best code and obvious choice, but then I see that's where uh, coders are only using that um, and not re reading the definition around it. Remember that the N39.0 for unspecified UTI contains a note telling you to use an additional code from the B section, the B95 to B97, because now you have to identify the infectious agent if you can. And a lot of providers won't have that kind of in-house resource to identify the infectious um, agent to meet the coding guidelines. So now you have to go back to sign or symptoms because um, from chapter 18, the R codes, because you actually don't have enough information to uh, code appropriately. Even if it's unspecified, it still needs a different an additional digit and I'm seeing that being left off. So you could be documenting maybe pain associated with Mike Tarition, uh, R30, and you're going to need an extra digit, or unspecified urinary incontinence, R32, maybe retention of urine, R33, point, you need additional digits, uh, polyuria, uh, R35, point, and then blank, and then other difficulties with metrician or sterile pyuria. Uh, so things that patients are complaining of is there. But then once you make a formal diagnosis of urinary tract infection, remember UTI is not upper respiratory tract infection. It can be, but we're talking about the urinary tract infection. Then your provider has to look at the specific site because then we get into um, different areas of location and condition name. So think about this. We have the kidneys, which are polynephritis, and that's the N10 code, so for acute polynephritis. We have the bladder, which now we get into cystitis, N30, and we need additional digits. Or we have the urethritis, which is the N34, and then that's the urethritis and the urethral syndrome, which now you can see it's actually gender specific. So make sure that if you are looking to code for these services that you're understanding the associative diagnoses with these codes, if it's bacterial um, and viral infections, but also if there is something when it comes to um, pregnancy, sometimes that's actually a urinary tract in a pregnancy, and that's now in an, in an orgasm causing UTI in pregnancy, that's now in an O section, plus they're telling you you have to use an additional um, code in the bacterial etiology in the B95 to B97. So I think it's important just to, when you're looking at I-10 codes and you're seeing infections or incontinence or things like that, always read all of the notations around it because you can miss instructions to use additional uh, codes. So that's our kind of our coding instruction for today. 
The CodeCast podcast is also brought to you today by the Peripheral Cardiology Coder. It's my coding book for all things interventional cardiology and uh, interventional peripheral vascular services, including non-coronary services carve out for cardiology practices. Go to medlearn.com and the products page to find the Peripheral Cardiology Coder in its 22nd year in print. So hopefully everyone, you'll if you are a cardiology practice and you need that, um, feel free to go and take a look at that and hopefully you'll purchase it. So that's shame, my shameless plug for that. And my uh, personal tidbit today, so we know the Super Bowl is over, you know who won. And so um, I, I'm, I, I'm pretty happy as far as the turnout. Um, but now that I don't have football for a little bit, you know, my husband's going to force me to watch baseball. But luckily, Andrew McCutcheon is back for the Pirates. We are definitely um, on the Pittsburgh side of things, even though we are in California. That's always been a, a passion. We just really like those teams out there, and they all seem to support each, seem to support each other. Um, but also, it is uh, wine season, so hopefully, I'm going to get back up to Napa. It looks like my daughter's pushing for June when she gets out of school for teaching. She also is now a uh, varsity head coach for softball at her high school that she's at, so she's so excited about that. And me too. So you know, I'm going to be heading to Arizona more often than I actually feel like I want to to go watch. Uh, her coach and watch her games. I actually miss it when she was playing for 10 years. So that's kind of fun stuff. Just a a little bit of of back information there. So I hope everyone's having a good February. Hopefully the groundhog was not correct and you're not blizzard out. Um, We're really weird in California. Um, Over the last couple of weeks, we've had some great sunshine and 70 degrees, our usual mild temperatures this time of year. And then of course it turned to rain this week. So in 50, 50s. So for us, we're freezing. And I know some of you are thinking, okay, enough already. But yeah, that's that's what we do. We we whine about our 50 degree rainy weather, even though we need it. Anyway, everyone make it a great day and a great rest of your week. And thank you for listening to the CodeCast podcast. For more information on medical coding, billing, auditing, and compliance, including how to hire Terry, follow Terry on Twitter at TerryCoder1 or visit her website at www.terryfletcher.net. Podcast producer Joe Kuzma, music producer Assassin Music.